question that I asked myself, at least the most fruitful question that I asked myself in preparing for this message was, what is the difference between a human being and a beaver? Because I was trying to get at what the essence of work is, and beavers are famous for their work. Dr. Brushaber once called a professor out at Westmont, he's a beaver, that's why he can write so much. I want us to try to get God's perspective on our work, our labor this morning, your secular vocation. Because in my judgment, a Christian is a person who brings all of life, including his labor, into sync with God's revealed word in Scripture and to help us orient even our work on God's revealed will. I want to draw out of Scripture with you a miniature theology of work or four reasons why God wills work. Number one, God wills work because when we work in reliance on his power, And in accordance with his pattern of excellence, he is glorified and we are made happy. Let me say that again. God wills work because when we work in reliance upon his power and in accordance with his pattern of excellence, his glory is manifested and our joy is increased. I want to start with Genesis chapter one. You won't necessarily need to look up all the text that I referred to, but uh, if you're fast, you can. Genesis chapter one, verse twenty seven. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Since our being created in God's image is so directly connected with the privilege and duty of subduing the earth and having it in submission to ourselves, I infer from that passage that at the very heart of our human vocation, is a subordinate lordship over the world by which we shape it, control it, and put it to good use. God takes man on as a deputy, as it were, and endows him with godlike rights and capacities to subdue the world, to shape it, control it, use it for his God-ordained purposes. So, if you go all the way back, Beyond the fall into sin to the act of creation, you see that vocation or occupation or work had no negative connotations. It's not a curse in and of itself. In fact, according to Genesis 2, 2, it says God himself ceased from his work or his labor rested. So the very first thing that happened in human history is work. And it it was God's. And the very capstone of that work was a human being in his own image who was commissioned to occupy himself with the subduing of creation for good and holy purposes. So I don't want us to even 
have the thought in our mind that at the beginning, work was a curse. It was, in fact, a commission that was to be joyfully fulfilled. But here's where the beaver comes in. A beaver subdues his surroundings. A beaver shapes his world and puts it to good purposes, builds a dam for a house to live in. And it's beautiful, architecturally significant. And I don't doubt that God himself is glorified in the diligence and the skill of the beaver. All things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful. The Lord God made them all and I don't doubt gets glory in them all. Don't the Psalms teach that? The mountains clap their hands in praise to the Lord. So what's the difference between a human being at work and a beaver at work? Or for that matter, a bee been to the state fair and see all those little bee displays or hummingbird. Have you ever seen the nest of a hummingbird? They work hard. They subdue their surroundings. They shape them into beautiful forms, structures that are useful. The difference between a human being and a beaver is that humans are morally self-conscious and make choices about their work on the basis of motives that either honor God or don't honor God. No beaver or bee or hummingbird consciously relies on God. No beaver ponders the divine pattern of excellence and makes a moral choice to bring his life into conformity to divine excellence. No beaver reflects on the purpose of his existence and consciously chooses to glorify his maker by assuming a humble walk of faith and reliance on the power of God. But human beings have all those potentials. When God commissions us to subdue the earth, he commissions us to do something that only humans can do, not beavers. He means do it like a human. Make a morally self-conscious decision to glorify him. So when he sends us out to work, to be sure the ditches that we dig ought to be straight. And the pipe fittings ought not to leak. And the cabinet corners ought to be flush. And our typing ought to be accurate and clean. And our surgical incisions ought to be smooth and leave very tiny scars. And our meals ought to be nutritious and attractive because God is that way. He is a God of order and beauty and competence. But cats are clean and Ants are industrious, so much so that the Proverbs say, you humans go learn from the ants. And spiders produce things as orderly and beautiful as anything man has ever produced. So what's the difference between a human being at work? When you work, the difference is this. 
You must go about it. This is the essence of your work. You must go about it in conscious reliance upon the Lord. You must go about it in conscious pursuit of his pattern of excellence. And you must go about it in the hope that he will be glorified through your reliance on him and pursuit of excellence. It is a conscious moral choice on your part or everything you produce has the character of spiders and bees and beavers. When you work like that, when you enter your job Tuesday morning in that spirit, you're going to sleep better Tuesday night. God made human beings in his own image with impulses and powers to do creative, joyful, purposeful work. People, therefore, who are given to extensive idleness will not be happy in the long run. If they choose to abandon productivity, they will lose joy and purposefulness. Here's what Ecclesiastes says. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the surfeit of the rich will not let him sleep. People who spend their lives mainly in idleness or frivolous leisure are rarely happy as those who work. Most of the retired people at Bethlehem have discovered that, know that. And therefore, most of you have seen to it that your lives are filled not necessarily with gainful employment, And I want to stress that on this first point, the essence of work is not earning, but gain, not gainfulness, but productiveness, creativity, meaningful and purposeful activity. We ought to help each other with that, especially when it comes to the issue of unemployment. Unemployment is not, first of all, an economic problem. It is, first of all, a theological problem. Man is created in God's image and endowed with traits that give them an impulse to be creative, productive, occupied, doing something worthwhile. And therefore, extensive idleness brings down a cloud of guilt and futility, which all of us have felt. From time to time. And so the first reason that I want to stress for why God wills work is that when we do it in reliance on him and in accord with his pattern of excellence, he is glorified and our lives are filled with the joy of purposefulness. The second reason why God wills work is that by working, we provide our legitimate needs. We provide for our legitimate needs. When Adam and Eve sinned, God imposed on the human race a condition of of misery to signify until the end of this age that while there is yet sin, things are not as they should be. He said to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, 
you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you in toil. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth unto you and you shall eat the plants of the field in the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread until you return to the ground. Now, keep this clear before the fall of man into sin. God provided for his food. He lived in a garden, an orchard. After the fall of man, the curse is you won't eat unless you sweat. Before the fall, God was the sustainer. And that's why I said the essence of work in its original created intention is not keeping yourself alive. God devoted himself to keep Adam and Eve alive. They were simply to fill their lives with meaningful, purposeful, creative activity and pick the fruit when they got hungry. But when they chose to be self-reliant instead of trusting in their God's fatherly guidance and provision, what God did was simply give them what they chose, self-reliance and said to them, You have chosen to be self-reliant. Therefore, if you want to stay alive, you make it. Make bread out of wheat and barley. Once they were in a garden with trees where they could pick what they wanted, they were driven from the garden and sentenced to plow those fields to get that grain raised so that they could thresh it, so that they could grind it, so that they could knead it. So that they could eat it and they filled their lives with laborious, sweat producing activities just to stay alive. The curse is not work. Per se, the curse is that in our work, we struggle against weariness, frustration, calamities and things that tend to make us feel futile. And all of that is made doubly burdensome because now our life depends on it. In toil, you shall eat of the ground. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. But you should be asking now this question. Hasn't the coming of Christ lifted the load of this curse off of us? Hasn't he reversed the curse and and taken us back to our primal, original Condition with God? And the answer to that question is yes, but only partly now. Yes, consider death. Death is part of the curse, isn't it? Has the coming of Christ lifted the curse of death? Yes, but not wholly. Every one of us will die. We will crash at the end of our 12-minute descent. But the sting of death has been removed, the hopelessness of death. I'll bet there were a handful of people on that jet who, when the smoke started filling the cabin and there was screaming and pandemonium, simply bowed their heads and folded their hands and said, thy will be done and went home in peace. The burden had been lifted. Christ has done that. But has he done it for our labor? Has he lifted the burden of the curse of wearisome, 
toilsome, futile, frustrating labor. Listen to these words from Jesus. Don't be anxious about your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, or about your body, what you shall put on. Your heavenly Father knows you have need of those. Just seek the kingdom first. They'll be added. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's not futile. Jesus has lifted the burden of the curse that was put upon our work. He doesn't will that we be frustrated and futile and depressed by our labor, our vocations. But notice, just as death really does endure to the end of this age, though its sting is removed, so does the demand and the need that we work to stay alive endure to the end of this age. The coming of Christ does not mean that you can quit work and pick fruit from your neighbor's orchard. That's the mistake that the Thessalonians made. It's an eschatological mistake about misjudging the end of the times and what it means to live in this age. Here's what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. Even when we were with you, we gave you this command. If anyone will not work, let him not eat. For we hear that some of you are living in idleness, mere busybodies, not doing any work. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus to do their work in quietness and to earn their own living. Second Thessalonians three ten through 12. Able bodied people who choose to live in idleness and eat the fruit of another man's sweat are in rebellion against God. God has, however, not completely removed the curse. He has softened it with a promise. The curse says. You won't eat unless you sweat. The promise from Proverbs 12:11 says, if you sweat, you'll eat. In other words, the, the curse is, is made into a guarantee of sustenance. And so the second reason why we should work is to provide for our legitimate needs. Third, God wills work that by working we may provide for the needs of those who cannot provide for their own needs. That promise that I just gave you from Proverbs 12:11 is not absolute. It's a rule of thumb. If you sweat, you'll eat. We've all discovered you prosper when you're diligent. But if you live in a village in sub-Saharan desert, you can sweat your face off and not one blade of corn will come out of the ground. Or if you're on your way to market with your load of rice or corn and you're rolled by the thieves and left for dead. What did it pay? Or if you are disabled, your earning powers may be cut to almost nil. Not everyone who is willing to sweat will eat. All that is part of the curse. All that is part of the futility of this world. And God in his mercy has 
ameliorated the curse by giving the command of love. Not only work for your needs, work for the needs of those who cannot supply their own. I'll give you three passages of Scripture where I learned that lesson. First, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. Here Paul is addressing a system of providing for widows in the church. These are the grandmothers of the children and the uh, parents of those children in the church. And here's what he says. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his own family, he is he has disowned the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And he's talking about your grandparents. Acts 20, 35. Paul refers to his own manual labor of tent making. And here's what he says about how it should be an example to the people. He says. In. In all things, I have shown you that by so toiling, one must help the weak. That's the same word that's translated sick often in the Gospels. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it's more blessed to give than to receive anyway. Then finally, Ephesians 4.28. Problem with thieves in the community who are getting converted. What should they do? Does Paul just say to the thieves, quit stealing and work? No, he says one more thing. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his hands so that he may what? Give to him who has need. He doesn't settle for making a thief into a self-reliant, good American businessman. He will not settle for that. He turns him into a merciful benefactor of those in need. So my third reason that I see in Scripture for why we should work is not only to meet our own needs, but to provide for those who can't meet their needs. Finally, God wills that we work because in our work, we build bridges for the gospel. Most of you work in the world. Most of you rub shoulders with those who do not believe the gospel when you go to work. And God means it to be that way. Don't run from that. If you enter that world in this spirit, that is relying on God for his power, setting the pattern of his excellence, striving to meet your legitimate needs, but also having an eye to love so that you can share your resources with those who can't. That will build bridges for the gospel. People will see that and they will be more open to what makes you tick. And here's where I chose the text of the morning. First Thessalonians 4:11, which says, I exhort you to aspire to live worthily or quietly to mind your own affairs, that is, don't be busybodies in idleness, poking your nose in everywhere. To work with your own hands as we charged you. Why? Here's the final purpose. So that you may command the respect of outsiders, that is, unbelievers, and not be dependent on anybody. There is a very close connection between the way you do your work on Tuesday 
and whether or not bridges are being built to unbelievers in your office or place of work. So let me just sum these four purposes up and we'll close. It is God's will, brothers and sisters, that we be salt scattered all over Minneapolis in every vocation that is not involving immorality. Prostitution is not one of them. Almost every vocation is open field for the sowing of Christian salt. Tonight, I want to talk about what it's like to be free salt. That means I want you people out there, don't gravitate to this building. Go be salt in your vocations. And the way to be salt, it seems to me from these verses, is that you enter that vocation relying on the power of God, knowing that you can't do anything worthwhile ultimately unless your creator is holding you up and inspiring you. Second, that you have a pattern of excellence that's modeled on the man who is the God man and spoke this world into being and upholds it by his word of power and is excellent beyond measure. And that you have a need, yes, very sober mindedly, of providing your needs and your family's needs that you must do. But also that your heart is larger than that. And you have a view in your work and with your money that you make to supplying the needs of the gospel and people in your community who may need it. And that grandmother who can't work anymore. When you enter your work world like that, I know that bridges are going to be built for the gospel. And you know who will walk across those bridges? Unbelievers right into the kingdom. And you will have your final reward. That is, you'll be the means of someone's salvation. And that's the great delight of us all. And I pray this week, Tuesday on, that you'll maybe use Monday tomorrow to ponder these things and what it may call for in the change that you should make at work. Maybe you've been doing shoddy work. That ought not be. Maybe you've been relying on your own strength. That ought not be. Maybe you've been doing it for your own glory, trying to get strokes from the boss. That ought not to be. There is a theology of work that will transform your life and build bridges for the gospel. Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, worker on our behalf, maker, sustainer, redeemer. What a worker you are. Excellent in all your ways, calling us into your family and setting us out into the world as salt. Lord, grant, I pray that you be glorified this week in all our labor, no matter where we work. In Jesus name. Amen.